You're listening to Clinical Minds, presented by Medidata, a Dassault Systems company. I'm Paul Ostreicher. It's no secret that the clinical trial participation gap is wide. More than 12% of the U.S. population is black, but black patients make up only 5% of clinical trial participants. The contrast is even more stark in the Latinx population, who make up 16% of Americans, but just 1% of patients in trials. It's not just a single issue driving this disparity, as we learned in a previous episode. It's multifactorial, including issues around patient engagement, medical distrust, accessibility, and socioeconomic factors. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Fabian Sandoval, CEO and Research Director of the Emerson Clinical Research Institute in Washington, D.C. Dr. Sandoval is passionate about how clinical research improves health outcomes. Through his diverse career in academia, healthcare systems, and the public sector, he's had a passion to bridge the gaps in Latinx patients participating in clinical trials. It's been the connective tissue in all of his work. And fun fact, Dr. Sandoval is also an Emmy winner and host of the weekly medical TV show, Tu Salud, Tu Familia, Your Family, Your Health, on Telemundo. Dr. Sandoval, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Paul. Uh, that was a great intro. I, I really do appreciate that introduction. Uh, it's great that we're actually going to have this discussion and what is happening now, um, pre-COVID, post-COVID, and, and what are we doing to really get rid of this gap that exists in diversity? Right. I, I think to get us started, though, maybe we should hear a little bit about you and the Emerson Clinic. What helps set it apart from others? Why should sponsors of clinical research and contract research organizations, CROs, work more closely with you? I started ECRI eight years ago, and we now as a company have grown to the point where we have really become this trusted institution amongst D.C., Virginia, and Maryland residents. Why, Paul? Because we connect with our patients. We connect with the public all the time. It doesn't always have to be associated with clinical trials, but we are there talking to them and educating them and and letting them know that we are a trusted organization. All of my staff are bilingual. Some are trilingual. And that's very important because patients need to feel comfortable speaking to someone uh, without having to translate in their head what's going on so that they can express their feeling, their condition to someone. And if you can do that, it makes such a difference. And that's what sets us apart. We don't care. We tell them up front, Paul, we don't care about your legal status. We don't care about your insurance status. We don't care about how much money you make. We just want to help you. We will come as early as you need to. We'll get you here. So going above and beyond what's expected from a normal practice, going above and beyond what regular research sites do and uh, sponsors recognize that is, is huge. When sponsors kind of don't see that, they just think it just magically happens, but they don't know the amount of effort that it takes and for our team to make it happen. Yeah. You and your team obviously have gone well above and beyond and COVID-19 has been part of that. It's presented a whole new set of barriers, including the inability to visit a site in person. Uh, It's also presented opportunities for decentralized or remote clinical solutions to flourish. 
So in addition to the ability or inability to go to a site, what are some of the biggest barriers to participation? And what are some of the ways you and your team have been able to help people with illnesses and their caregivers overcome those barriers? Getting to the clinic, having the time to come to the clinic gets in the way a lot. Uh, Sometimes even getting in touch with our patients because they work multiple jobs. They're not allowed to use their phone when they're at work. Um, Some of the technology of using their phones can get in the way. All those little things. So we made sure as this was happening that we at least could implement telemedicine. At first, we didn't have these telemedicine apps. We knew they existed, but they were too expensive, Paul expensive for, for a, a, a small site like us as we grow i really have to watch our pennies and did we could we find an inexpensive platform that we could use to use telemedicine at first we were scrambling and we were using our iphones and we were just facetiming patients we were using whatsapp to try and get to the patients if we can talk to them if we needed to see them we were doing that and then i found finally a reasonable uh telemedicine app that was more secure that worked well. Now we have something more efficient and patients have learned to use it. But I think that's the key, Paul, is actually having the patients understand how the technology works so that they can use it and not be concerned. There's always, you know, chismes, right? There's always these rumors of, you know, the government coming to to take my information. The government is going to take me and my family away, right? All these rumors in our communities that we have to dispel. So because of, of the, the standing relationship that we had with patients, that wasn't much of an issue for us. That's, that's interesting because we, we know that trial decentralization technologies provide great benefits to increasing diversity in clinical research. But as you point out, it's not the, the only answer. So what steps can companies like ours, as well as sponsors and CROs, take to make clinical trials even more accessible? Part of that is is ensuring that the technology that we will pass along to someone is very user-friendly, is ensuring that you have one or two languages already set before you even launch the study. Don't wait for a site to say, oh, you know what? We have a lot of people that speak French because there are a lot of Haitians in the community. You know, we have a lot of Portuguese. We have a lot of Spanish Know where you're going to go target your clinics and know what kind of population they have when you're doing the selection. So that as you're doing that, you're also preparing the consent forms and preparing all the fancy gizmos and gadgets that patients have to use. We are going to cut off a huge population of patients that don't allow for that. There's three principles of, of just, three principles in the Belmont report, you know, beneficence, respect for persons and justice, right? Justice is probably my favorite component of the Belmont Report, which says anyone who wants to participate in the study should be allowed the opportunity to participate in the study. And I'm telling you, that's not the case with a lot of studies. And it's unfair when I get a study that says, no, only English patients can participate. Why? Why is that? You know why? Because they don't have these tools in Spanish. You're cutting out the entire half the population unfair. So you're identifying some significant gaps, including education uh, and understanding the audience that we need to be dealing with. How do we 
tackle that? Is there a priority list? Are, are some things working better than others? You know, I think what's working uh, better than others is sites really working with um, sponsors and sponsors finding the sites that have the infrastructure and have the population to do it. And if they don't, to help identify them. You know, um, another uh, concern that I have is that sponsors sometimes don't give that opportunity to a new investigator. The investigators have all the patients that they need but they have never conducted a clinical trial. Therefore, you're out. And I understand. I am a big believer that clinical research is a privilege, not a right. So just because you want to doesn't mean you can. But it doesn't mean that if I have the infrastructure in place, if I've partnered with organizations that have the infrastructure, let me start. Because we have to. If you really want to make this difference, you have to put something in place that will allow new providers to conduct a study. And you know what, Paul, let me go back to you for just a minute uh, on, on this whole language issue. Imagine yourself in China and you, Paul, are very sick and you want to be in this study and you don't understand a lick of Chinese, but that study is going to save you. Isn't that an unfair situation where they're like, oh, sorry, you don't speak our language. We can't put you in the study. Oh, you could have done it, right? We have to remember that. It's not just here in the U.S. It's everywhere else in the world. And we need to keep that in the back of our minds. Um, that's why having someone that picks up the phone and speaks in your language puts you at ease. You don't have to worry about interpreting what you're thinking. Just talk to them. When you're sick, you don't have the ability to think in another language. You want to answer in your own mother tongue. Sure. It, it's an axiom in communications that you have to understand the audience. You have to put yourself in their shoes. And that's that's part of being compassionate and empathic with the, the people that you're dealing with. So you know, we're hearing about a lot of issues here. Uh, can you tell us about a win, a success story that might be able to be replicated. How do you teach us, you know, teach, teach our listeners what they can do to improve diversity, to improve accessibility. The simplest thing to do is to find out what kind of patients you have, find out what cultures they are, learn about the culture, learn to connect, be a human. Don't just be a robot that does science, be a human, engage them, Learn about their dietary habits. Learn about their cultural habits. Learn about the do's and don'ts. Learn that if you give something to an Asian patient, you need to do it with both hands because that's a sign of respect, right? Little things that will help you connect and develop that level of trust. Don't speak above someone's level. You know, speak to them. We're not here to scold patients. And we don't want to be scolded at, at when we're patients ourselves. Um, and that is probably the simplest tool and, and word of wisdom that I can give to someone is put yourself in that patient's shoe and speak to them kindly. I, I want to flip the coin for a minute, though, and uh, ask you about something I've heard you say, which is the future of medicine starts with you. I'd like you to tell us more about that. What's what's your message to people who might be eligible for clinical trials? and how do you talk to them about the importance of becoming involved and working through some of the, the issues, especially trust? Yeah, so 
Thank you for bringing that up, Paul. You know, I came up with that probably about seven years ago, that little uh, tagline, because the future of medicine, in my opinion, is a triad. It's you, the sponsors, you, the pharma companies, you, the CROs, is one component. We have you, the providers, which is the study coordinators, the nurses, the PIs, sub-Is, and the most important one of all is you, the patient. And I think when I say the most important one of all, put yourself in any of those positions. We are all very important to make that a success. So that part of, of, of the future of medicine says to patients, work with your providers. If you don't have one, you know, find those studies that would probably fit you. And it's hard to find a study. It is extremely hard to find a study. And I know that from personal experience, it's something that my mom is going through. My mom's got Parkinson's and I haven't, Paul, been able to find her a study. It's killing me and it's literally killing my mom. So it's, sorry to hear that. It's very hard. Thanks, Paul. It's very hard. Um, to deal with what my mom is going through, but I can't find her. So how do we expect someone who has got no idea even what a research study is about to, to put it in perspective? So what can patients do? Talk to friends, find solutions. And it's hard to find a solution is, is, you know, fortunately or unfortunately watch our TV show, right? If we can get patients to watch our TV show more, more patients are educated, more patients know that we have resources for them. And that's what I, I push on our TV show all the time. There's a section on our TV show called Advances in Medicine, right? Clinical research. And there, every show, I talk about one of the studies that's going on and how people can get involved and where they can get information. And our show is available on Facebook. It's available on YouTube, on our own website, because that is the only tool that I have, Paul, to push the word out. And I need more people engaged. I need more sponsors to help us spread the word, to help me communicate this important message of research through this TV show so that people don't have to go through with what I'm going through right now. So I'm wondering if uh, ways to enhance uh, education, outreach, engagement, uh, knowing where to find and register for trials. I know there are resources that are involved across the board here, but if you could you know, wave your magic wand, what kinds of things would you change immediately? Uh, I would have a national campaign, right? I would take what we're doing and make it bigger. Take this national voice and have constant uh reminders of where people can go and establish something, right? Um, that's important. Do you remember um, when uh, the trade organization Pharma put out um, one commercial? It was like, thanks to all the research companies for, and I forget what the study was for, um, but because of all this, and it was a huge success because people learned a little bit about it. Now is the time to bring this up. Everyone knows that clinical research is some cool thing since COVID has hit. Why do we have vaccines so quickly? Why are we having try, you know, treatment so quickly? That needs to be uh, worked on right now and use that platform to go, look, this is one example. This is all the kind of stuff that we can do in clinical research to advance the future of medicine. And now the future of medicine is all of you listeners out there. So that is my magic wand. I wish that could happen. Is there a hopeful message you can leave with us? 
Yes. What's good out there? What's good is what we're doing. What's good is that people are spreading the word that what we are doing to help the community is a positive thing. The good is that the studies that we're currently doing at our site are giving excellent results to our research patients. And because of that, patients are telling more of their friends and they're coming in. Now we're getting word of mouth that said, you know, my friend told me that you're doing this and I have someone and I want to know. So because of the good results that we're getting in our studies, people are starting to spread positive rumors about what's happening. And these rumors are true. Well, let's hope for the continuation of this, the spread of the, uh, the word of all the good work, the availability, how people can make their own individual contributions, and how the industry can make its own contribution as well. So, Dr. Fabian Sandoval, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you and your team are making tremendously important contributions, and we appreciate the time you took to share your thoughts and insights with us. If you want to learn more about how you can get involved with the Emerson Clinical Research Institute, please visit ecrinstitute.com. This has been Clinical Minds presented by Medidata. This whole season is devoted to diversity in trials, trust, and access to care for all. Please subscribe and leave us a comment wherever you get your podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for spending some time with us.